0: Well, happy April Fool's Day. And, uh, no, I, you know, I, I, can, I can just picture it now if uh, there were two disciples that gathered together on that first Easter and uh, the one disciple said to the other one, Jesus is dead. April Fool's, he's alive. No, they wouldn't have said that because they didn't have April Fool's Day back then, right? Um, as a matter of fact, I don't, I don't remember the last time that we had Easter on April Fool's Day. But uh, what they did, what they did uh, really have back then was an understanding of firsts, like April 1st, okay, or beginnings, starting of new seasons, things like that, which they demonstrate, really, uh, we, we can find this embedded in the Scriptures, in, in the Bible, where the, at the very beginning, chapter 1 of the first book in the Bible, Genesis, it says, in the beginning... Yes, they understood about beginnings. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes on to say, And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning. The first day. Scientists love to go back to the beginning, too. They like to uh, find those first, uh, those first things. And they like new beginnings. But the one thing that they have difficulty really naming when they talk about first things and beginnings in, in uh, the universe is the who. You know, who is behind all of this, I, which leads to the how. You know, how, how in the world did all of this happen? But in the Bible, it gives us such answers when it says, in the beginning... God, I, I remember sitting out on my deck at night in the mountains of Colorado where the, you know there wasn't the ambient light and you could see the thousands of stars. And I'd sit there looking up at the stars and what would come to mind for me would be Psalm 8 where Psalm 8 says this, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? The universe is so vast that we can't even comprehend it all. They call it the known universe because there's only so far we can see. We haven't had anybody invent a telescope that's large enough and strong enough to be able to see beyond that at this point in time. Well, Louis Giglio who's uh, made uh, uh, quite a reputation for himself in going around the country and talking about this very subject, he talks about things like light, for example, the, that light that Genesis talks about in chapter 1, where, for example, light travels. Talk, he talks about creation, God's creation. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. Now imagine, just think about that for a second, how fast that is. I mean, that's, that's, that's unreal. A beam of light can circle the earth seven times every second. Every second. Light travels 5.8 trillion miles in a year. The known universe is made up of hundreds of billions of galaxies. Not to mention the part of the universe that we can't even see, we don't, we don't even know about. Okay, just just what we know about it. In, in, the, in that vast universe... We live in a little corner of that vast universe called the Milky Way galaxy. And in this Milky Way galaxy, just one of billions of galaxies, it consists of billions of stars. And here we are on this little place called Earth that rotates around just one of those billions of stars. Now with this vastness of this universe that we inhabit here, in in this vastness of God's creation. The God who made all of this must be a very great God to be able to make something so great. God says this in Isaiah 40, "...to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal?" says the Holy One. "...lift your eyes, look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name." Because of His great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. He is a very great God to make all of this and to sustain it. And in contrast, we are very small. Neil Armstrong, astronaut on Apollo 11, on his way home that mission, said this. This was the quote. It suddenly struck me that that tiny pea, pretty and blue, was the earth. I put my thumb up and shut one eye, and my thumb blotted out the planet earth. I didn't feel like a giant. I felt very, very small. With the vastness of the universe, its creator must be very, very large. And with the smallness of the earth, you and I must be very, very small. And yet so many people reverse that, making God very, very small and you and me very, very large. But that's not reality, is it? God is bigger and greater than any one of us can possibly imagine. And this great God gets a kick out of beginnings. In the beginning. God gets such a kick out of beginnings that actually He likes to get a jump start on beginnings. He said this in Jeremiah chapter 1, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And Psalm 139, For you created my inmost being, God. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. He's not just the God who created the universe in all its vastness. He is the God who created you. He doesn't just call the stars by name. He calls you by name. He's the one who created you with amazing detail skin that regenerates itself, cells that heal themselves, a smile that speaks volumes without saying a word, an eye that can detect beauty, a soul that can feel love and pain and hope and despair, relationships that provide meaning. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Especially for a God who delights in firsts, in beginnings. Yet many wondered at the birth of Jesus how this could possibly be. After all, this was a first. How could God be with us in a baby in Bethlehem? But that baby grew up. He grew up to be a man, a man who taught with authority as such as no one had ever heard before, one who was able to do things that no one was supposed to be able to do. He was one who was able to do things that really only the creator of the universe could do, things like healing the man born blind, calming the wind and the waves of the sea, giving even sinful men and women new life and purpose and direction and new beginnings. Jesus is one who delights in new beginnings, just like His Father. But on one Friday, it seemed as though it was the end of it all, not a new beginning. Jesus was nailed to a cross with a sign above Him that really was the accusation against Him, the King of the Jews, which was mockery of Jesus because at that moment, He didn't have the power of a king, at least not apparently anyway, because His hands and His feet were were tied to the cross and nailed to the cross. He seemed to be powerless. And in that place, fixed by nails and ropes, the Roman soldiers gambled for his clothing. The thief hanging next to him mocked him. And the people spat at him and called him an imposter. Nothing. But for there to be new beginnings, there there sometimes really needs to be endings. For new life, there needs to be death. Friday ended with the sun vanishing by midday, the light which God created going out as the life of the world, the light of the world in His life, drained away. Creation itself rebelled at the act playing out on that hillside outside of Jerusalem as an earthquake ripped at the earth. And the temple itself was shook so hard that the the curtain that was supposed to separate keep people at a safe distance from God was torn in two. Creation cried out. And then the pronouncement of death came from those who were experts at death, the Romans. They had thrust a spear up into the side of Jesus, landing it all the way through his heart, pulling it out. And they announced that he and the other two who were hanging there with him were dead. Two secret followers of Jesus came. They got the permission from Pilate to bury him and brought him his body and lay it in a tomb. Now Jesus' enemies were rejoicing at this because they wanted their Jesus problem to be behind them. They wanted things as they were back before Jesus. Before Jesus, they were able to convince themselves and others that they were big. And in contrast, that God was very, very small. But when Jesus came along, He reversed that order and God became very, very large again. Very, very close. But they wanted this behind them. So they devised a plan. They rolled a massive stone over the entrance to the tomb that would take an army to move. And they placed soldiers outside the tomb to guard it. But why guard a tomb? I mean, it's not exactly like the dead are going to get up and walk out of there, is it? Or is it? Saturday came and went without incident. But then came Sunday at first light on the first day of the week. And we know how much this God likes first. Mary went to the tomb with the other women to anoint the body of Jesus, but they had forgotten about the stone and the soldiers and everything else. They were just beside themselves with grief. But when they got there, the stone was rolled back, the guards a non-factor, and a great God was beginning something new. An angel, a messenger of God, came and he spoke to Mary and he said, why do you look for the living among the dead? Now Mary's response isn't recorded this way in Scripture, but it But I wonder if maybe she thought this at the very least in that moment and and, and thought, I'm not looking for the living among the dead. I'm looking for the dead among the dead. Why would somebody look for the living among the dead unless? Could it be? But how could the dead live? When you are dead, you're dead, right? But is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Especially this God who created even the billions of galaxies and stars in the known universe. Would it be too much for this God who created all of that in this universe, this great universe, to raise this one from the dead? But the question remains, why? Why would he do such a thing? Because he gets a kick out of beginnings. In the beginning, That moment of Jesus' resurrection was a new beginning. Jesus' disciples went from people who were cowering behind locked doors for fear that the things that had happened to Jesus with that cross would happen to them, that they would be next. And They went from that, those cowering cowards behind the door, they went out onto the street corners and they would tell anyone who could possibly hear it that Jesus was alive. And they did so all the way up to their own death professing that this is exactly what took place. This little movement of 12 disciples would grow to impact even time, dividing time into B.C. and A.D., the wall between the great, mighty God who creates the universe and the small insects called humans was now bridged between the two. Jesus was raised from the dead not just for a new beginning, though, for time and for history and for eternity. He was raised for a new beginning for you. Yes, God knows the name of the stars. But God also knows your name. And He knows your needs. And He knows your need for a fresh start and a new beginning with Him. So, He came into this world to pay that price for you to be able to come into his presence. Then he rose to life so that you don't have to worship or, or believe just simply intellectual belief in some God that's distant, that makes no difference in life. But instead, you can follow and serve the one who is alive and with you right now, today. And to do that takes a new beginning, a resurrection in your own life, an awakening to reality that God is great and you are small but this great God loves you greatly. That creation was not created for you but to show off the glory and purposes of God so that you can look at the stars and that, that cross and at the empty tomb and wonder to yourself what is man that you are mindful of him? All of this is what Easter is all about. It's about beginnings, especially a new beginning for you because He really is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.